the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining us as always, the Prince of Twitter, the Regent of Red State, Henry Kissinger's stalker, as it turns out. <laughs> Andrew Malcolm, what the hell were you doing on Henry Kissinger's honeymoon? <laughs> you know, uh, he said if if he keeps seeing me outside his window, uh, he's going to have to call the police. Um, yeah, well, that was a great was story, a, by the way. It was a great story. Uh, uh, it was fun, and you know, uh, Jennifer Van Lar over there, the editor, said, "Well, you know, you've you've had a long career. You must have some interesting memories." And so, um, I wasn't thinking about it, but when you do, there are some little stories to tell, and you know, they're not going to change the course of history, but. There are interesting things that happened in my in my career and my childhood and and all the way through. Uh, and one of them was a call to me in my kitchen on a Sunday. No, it wasn't a Sunday, but it was, I think, a Friday uh, back in 1974 when my boss said, um, Henry Kissinger just got secretly married and he's on his way to Acapulco, and we want you to go cover it. Uh, and I said, Kissinger said that? He said, no, I'm saying it, no. Uh, <laughs> so I, you know, I jump on a plane and go down there, and there's a whole bunch of, I think, fun stuff in the post, which is open, um, and um, uh, about hanging around outside and uh, outside the estate where he was, sequestered with his uh, his new wife, Nancy McGinnis, that they met as a policy wonks on Nelson Rockefeller's staff. And um, uh, I, I um, it, it was it was it was boring at the time. But when you look back at it, it, it was kind of fun and funny and uh, had some little stories to share uh, about waiting outside at stakeouts, which are one of the worst assignments that, uh, not the worst, but some of the worst assignments uh, that you can get in uh, in the old days, at least in newspaper journalism. <clears throat> well, yeah, I, I would imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I read that this weekend. It's like, that's an interesting assignment. I, I'm not sure what you were supposed to get from it, though. I mean, well, I know that that's what I said. You know, I, I said, well, here, here's Henry Kissinger. He's going around the world, changing history, making history, creating peace, uh, launching invasions of Cambodia, uh, doing shuttle diplomacy uh, among Mideast uh, capitals. And I'm sitting down to write about his honeymoon and absolutely nothing happened that i could see uh and that's good. Uh, yeah yeah and, i feel bad um, for mrs kinchinger if that's really the case but so so i wrote the lead for my i said what the hell am i going to write this guy does important stuff and there's nothing important in this so i wrote a lead that um it said uh Secretary of State Henry Kissinger arrived here in Acapulco arrived here today uh, to confer privately with his new wife, the former Nancy McGinnis. And I thought it was making something of nothing and was kind of tongue in cheek. But of course, 
the New York Times editors in those days thought, oh, no, this is too, far too risque. Confer privately. Uh, so they changed it to some pedestrian thing about tourism. So, um, but unbeknownst to me, 49 years ago, it created a whole day that I could write about and have some fun on Red State that didn't even exist then. So, ta-da. So were you able to put the margaritas on the expense report? I mean, that's <laughs> question I really had uh, from that is that did, did, did the New York Times actually pay for you to be in, in a resort place like Acapulco? For... Yeah, well, I, you know, it, there weren't all that many planes uh, where I wanted to go from there. Um, but it, in those days, it's probably old hat now. But in those days, the swimming pool had a bar and you sit on the stool. The stool is underwater. You're staying oh, yeah. in the water and the bartender is behind the bar. The other thing it had, it was an amazing hotel. I don't remember the name, but the dining room was set in tiers carved into a cliff. At, at a, yeah, overlooking a cove on the Pacific. And there were crazy people uh, on a high cliff over there timing the waves and diving off the cliff. And hopefully the wave kept coming in so they had water deep enough. Um, it was it was an amazing hotel, uh, but um, I'd never go back there. Um, <laughs> I've, never been, I've never been to Acapulco. I've never actually. I've, I've been to Mexico once, and that yeah. was Tijuana when I was a kid, and it was like, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't need to be here, and I'm I, I I'm never coming back. You know, Tijuana yeah, is know. a little unfair to to judge oh, Mexico yeah. by Tijuana, though. You know. Yeah, it is. But you know, Acapulco. Now this is forty nine years ago. Acapulco, it was beautiful on the water, but once you walked a block into town, it was a dump, complete dump. And yeah, I heard Cancun's I, the same way, by the way. I heard Cancun's the same thing. Is that yeah, you know, it's, uh, if, as long as you're in the resort, it's fine, but after that, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess some of those Mexican resorts, not Acapulco, but they were adulterating the the liquor, and people got sick, and it's uh. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to Mexico for all the tea in Mexico. <laughs> well, as long as you boiled the tea first, and then you're probably yeah. okay. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, but uh, it was it was a fun thing, and it was in March, you know. So anybody who says, uh, and when you're in Chicago, and they say, "Hey, how'd you like to go to the tropics uh, on somebody else's credit card?" and he said, "Well, I think I could squeeze that into my impossible schedule." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I'm I'm a guy who worked <laughs> who worked two trips to Rome into uh, that's right, that's absolutely so, right. I'm yeah. I'm right there with you, pal. Right there <laughs> with you. Uh, it's a, it's an awesome column, and I mean, it is part of a series that you're doing some reflections on uh, the experiences that and you've they're had. open, they're open, and they're they're open. So just go over to redstate.com, and you can see that that was from uh, Friday. Uh, that was Friday's column uh, when I went on Henry Kissinger's honeymoon. Um, <laughs> and then uh, uh, and then your VIP call. I got to talk about your VIP column because <laughs> I, yeah. I was poking fun at you a little bit. And I don't think you actually saw it. But uh, your your the headline for your VIP column yesterday, this is Sunday's. It's what the heck was that DeSantis Newsom debate really about? And I said it was about 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I thought. I, uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was funny. It was about ninety minutes, but uh, it seemed longer. Um, <laughs> well, I 
I didn't watch it. I, I have to tell you, I, I, I didn't get a chance to watch it. I've seen clips of it since then. Dwayne and I discussed it on Friday's Weekend Review. But, I, you know, and I actually think it was a, it, it was at least a, oh, it uh, was, yeah. an interesting idea by both men to do this. But I guess the execution of it was not very well, good on Gavin Newsom's part. <laughs> no, on Newsom, no, he was lost. It may, to be fair, and I said this in the column yesterday, that he... He had a. He started out in a hole. Uh, I mean, I, it was supposed to be that this was all Sean Hannity's idea, but it was supposed to be red state versus blue state and pluses and minuses. But at the end result was uh, Newsom was being forced to defend Joe Biden and his policies, and you can't. Uh, now, the reason Newsom was there, of course, was to make himself look like a party leader, just in case you know who uh, drops out of the race, um, and then he's positioned. They got 5 million plus viewers, so, I mean, it was a pretty good crowd, um, and then DeSantis, he got exposure without the other GOP competitors. Uh, and I thought he did very well. I mean, he came like a prosecutor. He came loaded for bear. He had chapter and verse on what's wrong with California. And so he was going to follow the red state versus blue state theme. Uh, and he nailed uh, he nailed Newsom. He had a funny thing he's talking about freedoms. You have freedom. Uh, you have freedom in freedoms in California that you can defecate on the street, that you can <laughs> you could do drugs in public. You, I mean, I saw it, that clip. Yeah, that yeah. was a really effective argument too. Yeah, well, he would. Uh, I I thought I thought DeSantis. Of course, I prefer him anyway. But I I thought I thought he did very well. Um, and it's it's good practice uh, for him, and it's good exposure. You know, he'll be on next week from Alabama, the next, um, or no, it's this week, isn't it? Um, the next, uh, the next uh, debate this yeah, weekend, the next primary yeah. debate. Yeah. Um, in, um, in Tuscaloosa and there will see Haley will be there. Burgum dropped out. Uh, Vivek will be there. Uh, and there's a question about Chris Christie, whether he made, they raise the level of requirements each each debate so well they've been doing that and i mean they've been doing it in each debate and they warned everybody that they were going to do it for each debate because they do want to get this thing down to the people who might be relevant in a uh, in an actual vote right and right. doug Burgum dropped out today complaining about this process saying, well you know the rnc it's not the rnc's job to to you know call um well actually it is yeah it kind of is actually you know it's your job to make yourself <laughs> relevant and if you're not making yourself relevant, then it's kind of the RNC's job to get the irrelevant people off the off the debate. And, and he didn't make the last debate either. No, now, I mean he's a smart guy, and I suspect we're going like to see him. we're going to see him in the future. And you know, it's interesting. I looked into this a while back. Uh, they don't really drop out uh, for legal reasons. They suspend their campaign. Right. Because yeah. if they if they say that uh, we're ending the campaign, they can't raise any more money to pay off their debts. But if they suspend it, they can still raise money to uh, to pay off the bills. 
Yeah, and I think it's I think it's like they act they they suspend the active part of the campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they can still fundraise because usually these guys have taken out big loans against future donations in order to get on the air and that kind of stuff. And they have a they have a lot of bills to pay off at the end of this thing. And usually what happens, and you and I know this, but we'll just say it for the benefit of everybody else here, <laughs> that they'll they'll negotiate an endorsement of a candidate who can pay their bills. <laughs> So they don't have to keep fundraising, right? So Obama I'm not saying that, that Burgum's going to do it, but typically what would happen is Doug Burgum or whoever else dropped out, um, Asa Hutchinson, let's say, would start talking to some of the top tier candidates, you know, Donald Trump, DeSantis, Haley, and see if they've got enough cash to help them pay off their bills or at least to do some some joint fundraising. So they yeah, can get Obama the money. did that. Yeah, Obama yeah. did that for Hillary in 2008. Right. Because she it, was in pretty deep. typical deep debt yes yeah yeah well not so much so that it actually impacted the you know the um uh clinton foundation stuff you know and the clinton global initiative stuff they were amazing raising tons of money for that but they couldn't transfer that money into the campaign for campaign finance restriction reasons but yeah, they can raise tons yeah. of money for what they want yeah. well and everybody knows that the clinton foundation stuff was really just you know a trojan horse for her next campaign which is the reason why you don't hear too much about the clinton foundation anymore is because there is no next campaign to fundraise for um yeah you know so at any rate and and you know all that all that work and all that fundraising in haiti is still poor yeah well i mean that gets us to gaza right i mean because we've been pouring western government's been pouring billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars into gaza and they're still dirt poor and they still don't have their own power infrastructure. They still don't have their own water infrastructure. And the reason is, is because Hamas takes the money and puts it into the tunnel system. And they buy arms with it. And they took the water pipes out of the ground that uh, you know the, the, these Western uh, nations funded and turned them into, into rocket launcher tubes, right? I mean, they, they actually see this on video. Yeah. Um, so the whole idea of, you know, aid in these cases you mentioned haiti uh and you know gaza is the same way is that the money goes there but it disappears in, into people's pockets and haiti i think is more personal corruption but in hamas we've been literally funding terrorism for for 17 years in gaza and yeah. and we're still doing it you, you still hear well we're gonna when the current phase of fighting is over we're gonna put some aid into there and, and help them stand back up on their not as long as hamas is in there you're not what you'll be doing is you'll be transferring money Getting for arms, setting them up for the next battle. That, yeah. that's, it's ridiculous. It's, and it's, and for some it, for some PC reason, you, you can't see it. Huh. Yeah. Oh, I can see it. You can see it. Of course, Ed. Because you have the power. You, you demand. I, I, I demand. I, I'm the power that you got to fight. <laughs> I, you know, I want to talk. Speaking of fighting the power did you happen to see um jonathan turley's column today at his own site i think it was at messenger about um uh an irish journalist who was being um interviewed and her name is kitty i can't remember her last name i'll look it up in just a second um but she was talking about um when you're when you shouldn't report the news um, I want to, I want to take, I want, I want to, I want to pull this up. I'll pull it up on my screen just to make sure that I've got it. 
Um, but um, I, I found it to be very interesting in, in the fact that she just said basically what um, what American media doesn't say out loud. And um, is she called it the responsibility to not report. Uh, Kitty Holland, a correspondent with the Irish Times, is defending the media's decision to suppress stories that would incite hatred and undermine journalistic viewpoints. And this came about because there's been a series of crimes committed by immigrants who um, have been criminals themselves. Um, and the Irish media won't report the fact that they're immigrants or that they had a criminal status prior to that. And the reason why is they don't want to incite hatred against immigrants. Yeah, well, the U.S. does the same thing. Yeah, right. they don't, but they don't talk about it quite so openly. Um, Kitty Holland said, I think elements of these stories were not very good. They were incitement to hatred. And I think that's why the media left out aspects of them. I think they were right not to include um, uh, full the full remarks of the um, victim. I don't think that they were helpful. And this is the kind of thing that the far right latches on to. <laughs> the far right in, Israel, in, in, in Ireland, by the way, yeah, yeah. is somewhat to the left of Joe Biden, just to let you know. They don't really have a far right. <laughs> Exactly. exactly. You know, I, 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 Sinn, you know, Sinn Féin is uh, very leftist. Um, Fine Gael and, um, oh, uh, oh uh, uh, Fianna Fáil are just somewhat to the left of, I would say, the Biden administration. And that's it. Those are the... <laughs> Those yeah. are the political parties. So three polit major political parties. And then you got the Greens, which are even more way out. But I mean, you know, Sinn Féin is, you know, flat out socialist, right? <laughs> These guys yeah. are Marxists. Um, there is no far right. <laughs> what you have are people who are tired of having immigrants come in and commit crimes. And you're not allowed to talk about it because the media will, will tell you that you're a hater if you talk about the fact that you've got people that they're letting into the country who are committing crimes. <laughs> Well, wasn't there a discussion in the U.S. media not that long ago about uh, uh, not showing uh, mugshots of, right. of, of, of people arrested because you would see that they're black? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you, or at least that was the assumption, right? Is that somehow, or, and you were also not allowed to, and some police departments stopped uh, producing reports that gave physical descriptions of suspects. Be on the lookout for some some guy. <laughs> some guy in an orange shirt. Some yeah. guy in an orange shirt, right. Really helpful uh, because they were saying, well, that, 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 that uh, tends to, um, it, intends, it, it tends to uh, incite hatred. It, it tends to uh, reinforce stereotypes. I think that was really what the explanation yeah. tends, to, tends to reinforce stereotypes. But well, I mean, there's a reason that stereotypes are stereotypes. Well, yeah, certainly that's the case, right? I mean, it's not that it's always one person or another person. But in this case, you've got a description of the actual perpetrator. You're supposed to be on the lookout for that guy so they can get arrested and, you know, get and can be investigated for it. And you're not going to describe the guy because it might hurt somebody's feelings. I mean, that's pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. Uh, it is. It's it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. We have that, I'm afraid, to the nth degree here. Remember the, the Virginia schools earlier this year that 
that, that we're not informing the National Merit Scholars? I mean, this costs kids thousands of dollars. They didn't tell them that they got a National Merit Scholarship uh, because they didn't want the people who didn't get it to feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is participation. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, this is this is the corrosion of American exceptionalism that if you do well, you're rewarded. So if you do well, you're ignored. And if you're not doing well, they throw money at it. This is the the ultimate crime of California. They, it looks like you're doing something. Uh, a couple billion dollars here for homeless. And guess what? They're still the most in the country. Yeah, you know, it, but it gets back to what is the fundamental purpose of journalism? Why is it a profession that we we feel is necessary for democracy? It's because you need to inform people of the actual facts, not right. build narratives, right? So if the fact of the matter is that it's a white person in an orange shirt, uh, orange shirt who robbed the local 7-Eleven and was last seen running you know, eastbound on 1st Street, then you put that out there because you need to make sure that people know what to look for. If it was a Hispanic man, if it was a black man, if it was an Asian man in an orange shirt or a woman of all different varieties as well, you put that information out there because A, it's the truth, B, it's accurate, and C, it's necessary if you're asking the, the public to help find the person. Because um, otherwise what you get, I mean, literally what you get is people just grabbing anybody who happened to be on that street. <laughs> because there's nothing more specific or even worse yet is people just don't care because there's nothing they can do. So they just shrug their shoulders and, and don't do anything about right. it. And the guy gets off like the shoplifters. Yeah. And in the case of Ireland, the other part of that is there's a legitimate public debate to be had about immigration, about the levels of immigration, about the requirements for immigration. Uh, and, you know, Ireland is part of the EU. And so the Republic of Ireland is Northern Ireland's not anymore, but um, uh, but Ireland is Republic of Ireland is. And so those issues mean something both in Ireland and in Brussels. And they elect people in, to both governments, the people of Ireland elect people to both governments. So they should be informed of the benefits of the current immigration policy and the problems of the current immigration policy so that they can make a wise choice at the ballot box. And it's not up to, it shouldn't be, up to Kitty Holland or other journalists to say, well, we're simply not going to tell them about this because we think we don't like the choice that they might make because of that. That's not journalism. That is exactly something, right. it's, not, it's not journalism, something else, but it's not journalism. Yeah. And the, the same thing applies to the, to the censorship in war coverage. Now, yeah. I mean, what happens in battle is awful. It's beyond description. And if if you like I uh, do watch the um, the videos, uh, the <clears throat> Ukraine and sometimes Russian videos on the Ukraine war, uh, you see you get a, a much mm, I would say more candid view of what the horrors of war are than you do when you read about it in the newspaper or see it on the TV news. Um, it's, I, I saw that in Vietnam, um, you, you couldn't write things that were real and not gratuitous 
because uh, people were going to read about it at breakfast. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a story, and this is not an isolated example, but I had a story interviewing a refugee family that had um, become habituated to being refugees in, in South Vietnam. They'd done it four or five times, and they had maps of where they went each time, and they had learned what to bring and what not to bring. It was a horrible experience, and the baby, one of the babies had died uh, while they were fleeing Da Nang. And I asked the little girl if, uh, you know, they're squatting on the roadside. And I asked the little girl if, uh, if she was scared by all of this. And uh, she said no. And then she threw up in the, in the dirt. Yeah. And, and the way it ended up in the newspaper was she said no. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, it's not the censorship that you think of typically, but it is distorting it because you're thinking, oh, this might be too gruesome for someone to read at breakfast. But right. it's but it's true, you know. We, it's a nonsense had, standard. Yeah, it's a nonsense we standard. Had this, we had this argument on the New York Times where uh, years ago, you couldn't say any swear words. I mean, you still can't. Uh, and, and, and it was always changed to um, uttered and expletive. And that's, that's, I'm sorry. You you don't have to say what it is, but you can have the first couple letters and let people figure it out, you know? So I was writing about uh, the Chicago 7 trial and uh, the, the guys just kept disrupting and they would stand up and shout and scream and they, throw their chairs and all that stuff. And they would utter um, profanities. Well, you couldn't use those profanities. And so I said that they would scream an eight-letter barnyard epithet, which was a lot more than saying uttered an expletive. <laughs> uh, and that got in. That got in the paper. Um, and... Uh, the editor, not the editor of the Times, but a copy editor who's in charge of copy editors, called me the next day and said, "Damn it, you can't get, get that in there." And I said, "Well, you just swore. I mean, you know, it, it's. I didn't say it, but it, it was it was being honest to what it to what it was. Um, and yeah. I mean, that, it's not a that's not a constitutional issue. It's not a big deal, but it's." It's a truth issue, though. It's, it's a truth, a truth issue. issue. That's exactly what it is. It's a truth issue, and um, I'm I'm sure I made mistakes that that made things not exactly truthful. And but it, you you have to fight. I mean, I'm human, and you have to fight for what you think is right. And if you lose, you lose. And I lost most of the time. Well. Yeah. On the other hand, on the other hand, Ed, I did play games. I got in eight-letter barnyard epithet, and uh, the editors. I I used to write features, which were national features, which at the time were sort of new for the New York Times. That weren't typical political stories, and they were features, and they would have a beginning and an end, and I had an end, and they were always the editor was always cutting off the end. So it just ended with, 
you know, I mean, it was, when it when it didn't need to be that way. So one day, one day I was writing about the sheriff in Stockton, California. It was a feature, and I wrote about it, and I had the kicker, and then I added a throwaway paragraph after that, and they cut it off, and it ended the way I wanted. It there you go. Perfect. Yeah, see, I get work, work the man, work the system against itself. That's it. That's it. You hear a lot of Hollywood directors talk about that too, is that they include a bunch of extraneous stuff. So the, so that when it goes before the MPAA, they'll they'll say, well, you got to cut that stuff out and they'll leave the stuff that they really wanted uh, yeah. still in oh, there. There's yeah. a lot of stories like that too. Yeah. yeah. That's that's part of censorship. You you just start playing games around you find it. Find out ways to get around it. Remember, <laughs> during the Vietnam War, remember when the Buddhist priests or some of them um, would uh, pour gasoline on themselves and set themselves on fire. And it was a big news event and they were protesting the war and stuff. Right. Uh, and Mal Brown was the correspondent there for AP at the time and later the New York Times. And I got to work with him, this god of journalism. And uh, uh, so he couldn't, um, he couldn't write about it. So he did a picture, a very banal, banal picture photograph. And the caption was the story about a Buddhist monk in, immolating himself. And uh, the censor looked at the picture and they let it go through. But the caption <laughs> was breaking news for AP. And they, they got the story out. <laughs> well, there you go. We're going to wrap are... things up here pretty quick here because uh, okay. oh, yeah. time All schedule. Right. But do you have a, a joke or two? I've got yeah, one you, or two. You, you, go, you go ahead. I got to get mine. All right. Well, here, I'll, 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 I'll do this. This is the Sunday school teacher is looking out in the classroom and she sees uh, one of the little boys in the classroom making faces at the other kids and disrupting things. And so she's trying to be sweet. And she goes over and she says, look, Bobby, when I was a child, I was told that if I made ugly faces, my face would freeze and stay like that. And Bobby hmm. looks up and says, well, Mrs. Smith, you can't say you weren't warned. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 hell. Hello. Uh, uh, so I got a couple here. These are old. Jay Leno says a Japanese airline is now asking passengers to relieve themselves before boarding to save weight so now your bladder counts as carry-on <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, Fallon he says a new study found that dogs can actually feel genuine love for their owners while cats just keep a journal of all the things they hate about you <laughs> 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 I like that one. I like that um, one too. Yeah, That's, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, all right. So local bar, uh, bartender local bar. He's a big, strong guy, weightlifter kind of guy. And he uh, would take great joy in squeezing out every last drop of uh, juice out of a lemon. And then he would leave the rind on the, on, on the bar and offer $100 to anybody who could squeeze another drop out of the lemon. And, you know, people were coming out there and they were, that, you know, you know, other weightlifters would come there. People, you know, who worked in, with their hands would come there and they weren't, weren't able to squeeze it. Nobody was able to win the money. And one day this little old man comes in, sees the sign. He says, I'd like to give that a try. And the bartender says, well, <laughs> welcome to give it a try. 
So the little old man picks up the lemon meringue, squeezes it, and sure enough, six drops fall out of it. And everybody in the bar is amazed. He gets the hundred dollars. The bartender gives him the hundred dollars and says, "How did you do that?" He says, "He says, you know, did you did you work with your hands or you know lift weights?" He goes, "No, no, no. I, I used to work for the IRS." <laughs> from jokesoftheday.net. I love that site. I'm going over there more often. So yeah, got some great jokes up there. Andrew Malcolm, though, the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com, the man to see if you want to know about Henry Kissinger's love life. Uh, (laughs) Go read that column over Red State. You don't have to be VIP to get to that one either. Go read it. story about Henry Kissinger making a move on Zsa Gabor too. There is, and it's in there. Hey, look, and when he was doing it, it was worthwhile. <laughs> Not so sure about later, but <laughs> at the time. <laughs> All right, Andrew. Well, great talking to you. We'll do this again next week. Okay, everybody. See you, Ed. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>